Hello, I'm Rena Grobe, and I'm Madhvi Romani, and this is Misinformed, where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So, Madhvi, what did you get obsessed with this week? I've been thinking about mental health because it's the end of May, which marks Mental Health Awareness Month. And before I go on, I will be talking about race in the US, which is a sensitive topic right now, so a fair warning. I think we've come quite far in mental health to raise awareness. People are talking about it a lot more, taking these issues really seriously. I do think, however, there's still a kind of binary way of looking at mental health, which is changing. But like we were saying on last week's podcast, there is a sort of rational way of looking at things, which is kind of separate from the bodily corporate reality of an experience. And I think a lot of the time with mental health, people They're like, oh, it's all in your head and just change your thoughts and you can change everything. Anxiety and stress and all of this sort of stuff. You just think differently and boom, it's solved, which is not necessarily true. According to a whole bunch of research that has been published over the last few years, especially in the field of epigenetics, it's been shown that if we go through trauma or stress, it actually manifests itself in our bodies and even changes our genes and our DNA. So we can pass down experiences of trauma through our genes to our children and through generations. And this affects mental health and also our physical health. So for example, in the US right now, it's been shown, and also in the UK, that immigrant communities or black people in the US are suffering far more from the effects of coronavirus and their death rate is higher and that's due to an effect called weathering which was coined by a researcher called Aline Geronimus who showed that if you are continuously exposed to stress or discrimination for example if you're a black person in the US and followed around the store when you go shopping or even if you're worried when you go running that you might be shot like what happened to Avery earlier on or that you might get arrested and killed like what happened to George Floyd. So she showed that long-term exposure to the stress hormones affected your health and made you more susceptible to diseases and also chronic illnesses. What's really interesting about this is when she came up with this term and this idea about weathering, you know, why black people were unhealthier basically than their white counterparts or even for example black lawyers and doctors were unhealthier than white working class people there was a lot of pushback from the medical establishment who thought well either it was in the dna or that black people just had unhealthier lifestyles and it was kind of their own fault so which is kind of interesting because they didn't take into account their own responsibility for the system and the culture that made black people unhealthier some people even thought that it had something to do with the middle passage which was the ship journey from europe to the u.s for slaves and there was this theory that maybe people who had survived this had a gene for salt retention which then related to hypertension which has been totally debunked. What is evident is that the Middle Passage was a really traumatic event. It happened to about 12 and a half million 
Africans who were removed from the continent and taken over to the US for slavery. And this journey took two to three months. Men and women were separated, so the men were down in the hold in a cramped space where they could not even stand. And they were packed, hundreds of people together, shackled, bound together. And people were dying down there. It was about 120 Fahrenheit, which is about 48 Celsius. The smell must have been terrible. And it was a disorienting experience and also very stressful because the people didn't know what their future would be, where they were going or anything. So the middle passage, this traumatic event was imprinted in their genes and that then could have been passed down through generations to black people today. And when we see what happened with George Floyd, I think every single black person must be in a state of heightened anxiety and stress and grief and obviously that impacts their mental health. Related to this, Audre Lorde, who was a black feminist queer poet, came up with the idea of self-care and she had a really famous quote which you'll see on Instagram a lot. And the quote comes from her book A Burst of Light and she says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare. So what she's saying there is when you are living in a world that is hostile to your identity or your community, caring for yourself is a kind of political act. And like I said, this quote is everywhere on Instagram and has become really famous and self-care has really gone mainstream. So a lot of therapists are using it, a lot of people who sell self care products are using it and there's been this kind of conflation of self-care and mental health in mainstream culture and I just wanted to kind of start there. Well, I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like to be living in a constant state of stress, fearing for your life, both, you know, when you're just jogging down the street or even sleeping in your own home in the middle of the night, right? You're having to constantly worry about your life, your life, the lives of people you care about, about your children. I can only imagine that African-American people in the U.S. are living under constant stress, which would be like 300 years of living in a state of constant oppression and anxiety and stress. I mean, that's going to mess you up mentally. Along those lines, actually, a study found that African-American boys, especially younger boys between the age of 5 and 11, have experienced an increase in the rate of suicide deaths. And in black children age 5 to 12, the suicide rate was found to be two times higher compared with white children of the same age. So it's definitely a problem, mental health and the unawareness of it, or the untreatment of it, I should say, or even just the recognition in individuals is a huge problem. And not, I don't want to say who can blame them, because that's not quite what I mean, but you live in such a hostile society in your own country, you're constantly living in such a hostile environment, obviously it's going to have an effect onto your own mental health. So what you mentioned about self-care and the origins of self-care is absolutely fascinating because like almost all things self-care or wellness, which I personally would consider like the umbrella under which self-care now falls, has sort of become an industry. And I was very curious about where wellness came from, so I did a little bit of research. And in the Western world, 
Halbert L. Dunn first published a book in the 1960s, and he is sort of considered the father of wellness. I do want to just point out here, though, that just because people in America or Europe consider him the father of wellness doesn't mean he actually is. That just means it's the first time it was brought to their awareness. And then John W. Travis opened the first wellness center in the 1970s. So I watched an interview with John W. Travis where he says that Halbert L. Dunn said that being healthy is not only the absence of disease, make sure that our mental health is all right. So this is sort of where this, you know, his idea of wellness came from. He's considered an alternative medicine doctor. And I kept thinking about how this concept of wellness has kind of spiraled out of control in our current society. All trends that hit the mainstream sort of been commodified and fetishized by capitalism and by people who think that they can make money off of it. You you have a green juice smoothie place on every corner and you can take all these supplements to make you healthy and you can download a bunch of apps that are supposed to increase your mental health. It all seems very shallow and not really addressing the heart of the issue. Um, There was a really interesting article in Man Repeller about Instagram therapists. And they document this trend that a lot of people on Instagram have started accounts where they just share information, they share advice. And one of the points that they make in this is that they say that they're capitalizing on the therapy generation so that we are a generation that is no longer afraid to openly discuss therapy. And so how gotten a wind of this as the wellness industry has sort of changed from you have to meditate to sort of it's okay now to talk about being in therapy and there was a woman underneath who left a comment where she said that she thinks that the term insta therapy is misleading that most of these accounts are just educating people so they could should be called psychoeducation accounts because they're meant to raise awareness and that if we keep using these buzzwords we're sort of going to replace actual therapy with these instagram accounts we like oh i'm fine you know i follow a bunch of mental health accounts i'm fine i don't really need to go to therapy and obviously when you're getting all of your information from an instagram account that you don't know if what they're saying is correct or what their sources are obviously these can be great resources because there are actual psychologists but i wholeheartedly agree with this comment that it should just be a jumping off place for actually delving into the world of mental health. So yeah, the spreading of information is incredibly useful and it can be really great in sort of recognizing actual mental health issues, maybe because, you know, the topic of therapy or mental health or even wellness or just looking after yourself has sort of been so warped beyond what it was meant to be, you know, what the original thought behind it was. And I also watched an interview with Dr. Danielle McCurdy-McKinnon, and she talks about how throughout this whole new wellness trend that's been happening within the recent years, they identified a new eating disorder called orthorexia. And the dictionary definition of orthorexia is an obsession with eating food that one considers healthy, a medical condition in which the sufferer systematically avoids specific foods that they believe to be harmful. And in this interview, she sort of goes on to explain that it's the obsession with the quality of food, not the quantity of food, so that you obsess over your food being healthy or you can't eat refined sugar or you can't eat these products to the point where you make yourself sick because you're not getting enough nutrients because your body does need a balanced diet. And she alludes to this being a new trend 
that's really worrying because it's sort of born out of the commodification of wellness and self-care because oh I can't eat dairy I can't eat gluten I can't eat all of these things which not to say that there aren't people who don't have legitimate you know allergies to that and obviously there's a whole nother problem with the dairy and the meat industry but sort of in terms of nutrients that our body needs people are becoming so obsessed with the eating healthy and then sort of supplementing it with supplements afterwards that they're not actually giving their body the correct nutrients in the correct way that they need. There's a documentary that British Vogue did with Camille Rowe, the French-American model, and she actually sits down with a nutritionist coach and she writes down everything she does, everything she eats, all of her habits, and she brings out all of the supplements. And the nutrition coach looks at all of these supplements and she's like, well, why did you buy these? And she's like, because people told me I should. And the nutrition coach sort of points out to her, if you were eating a correct balanced diet, you wouldn't need to take all these supplements because you would naturally get them from your food. Also, your body can't absorb these supplements as well as it can the same vitamins should you get it from vegetables. So people telling you you have to take all of these supplements a la Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow and that whole thing, they're just selling you things under the umbrella of wellness. And it's kind of making us sick in the long term. So what you're saying is Instagram has kind of, and wellness and this obsession with wellness and self-care has created a whole new mental health issue around eating. The thing about Instagram, it's so complex because on one hand, it's really good that people are sharing more, that psychologists and therapists are raising awareness for mental health. On the other hand, like with everything on Instagram, it can be very very neatly packaged and also like you were saying with the eating you could get really really into it and into self-care and into your own thinking about your own psychology all the time that I almost think in a similar way this obsession with like clean eating and the purification of our bodies can extend to the purification of our mental space in a way. So like I started this podcast with a quick note about we're going to be discussing some sensitive issues, which is basically a trigger warning. And this gives the illusion, as Roxane Gay says, that there is such a safe space. And of course, safe spaces in some communities are really important. And the problem with the internet is just that things come at you all of a sudden and can shock you. So it's good to have those warnings. But also I feel like social media gives us the illusion that we can live in a safe space and shut off anything that is upsetting that we don't want to deal with we don't want to look at messy plates of food we just want to look at clean pure beautifully photographed plates of food and I think a lot of people don't have that privilege if you're black you have to reckon with George Floyd there's a big conflation going on between wellness self-care and mental health and a lot of people are using self-care as an excuse to just focus on themselves to focus on me time to make their space all nice and calm and clean without engaging in the wider world and the mental health foundation has a theme for mental health awareness week which just happened and their theme was kindness and of course kindness relates to self-care because it relates to being kind 
kind to yourself, being compassionate towards yourself too. But kindness is also an act you extend to other people. And when you do carry out acts of kindness for other people, it has health benefits for ourselves and also for others, reduces anxiety and increases self-esteem. I think this was a really good theme for the Mental Health Foundation to come up with this year, especially when so many people are losing their jobs, so many people are struggling in so many ways. And I just think we shouldn't lose that in this quest for self-care and safety. We shouldn't lose our sense of responsibility and awareness of other people at the same time. You also brought up something interesting when you said who has the privilege to indulge in these things, because in the modern day world, what is self-care considered? You know, we think of self-care as you can take time off work to go to a yoga treat. Who can even afford these yoga treats? Who can afford all these supplements? Who can afford therapy and not just afford it, but sort of have it be accepted, you know, in their immediate surroundings and by their family and friends? All of these things are incredibly expensive. And so self-care and this wellness industry has sort of developed into something far beyond what it was meant to be. They sort of teach you that self-care is having things. There was an article recently in The Strategist, which I don't really know what I thought was going to be in this article because it's an article by The Strategist. What they do is sell you things. But they had an article called Everything You Need to Feel Okay Right Now According to Therapists. And I really excitedly clicked on it because, you know, with Corona, it's a very weird time. And I was like, oh, great. Some advice from therapists about what you need. And they're just trying to sell you things. It's like this notebook, which costs $16. You know, this five-minute journal, which costs $25. This, you know, game that costs so much money. And I was like, oh, okay. Hey, maybe not all of us can afford to pay for Headspace, which costs $13 or the Calm Meditation app, which costs $15. Both of these are per month, by the way, not for a year. So it was like, okay, there's a massive price tag on all of these things. In Allure magazine, there was an article titled The Reality of Navigating the Mental Health System as a Black Woman. And the author, Vanessa Willoughby, she talks about how when she was 13, she was experiencing bouts of depression and anxiety. And she didn't really know how to deal with this because she was growing up in, a, as she puts it, painfully white suburb in Connecticut, where, you know, there were very few people who actually looked like her. And that finding a black therapist was impossible and that she really wanted to talk to someone who understood her experience. She also goes on to sort of elaborate that there was such a stigma surrounding therapy and that her parents would view her getting professional help as meaning that they had failed as parents. And then her father specifically viewed therapy as a violation of his privacy, but a practice largely for and exhibited by white people. And she notes that African-American teens are 20% more likely to experience serious mental health problems in the general population and how while the term self-care has slowly but surely seeped into our cultural vocabulary, discussing the topic of mental health, especially within the black community, is still stigmatized. So while for privileged white people, it might be okay to openly talk about going to therapy or buying the Calm app so they can sleep better, other communities, communities often, as we mentioned before, are living under a constant state of stress and for the last 300 years having lived under oppression and terrorized within their own country, don't have the same access to the same things. And if they do, would have to talk to people who don't understand their own experience because finding someone is so rare. That's just shit. And that's where Instagram comes in again because there are now black therapists online, on Instagram. Their whole profile is dedicated 
to black therapists. So it's becoming more accessible for black people to find black therapists who can then relate to them better. So in recognition of what happened to George Floyd and privilege when it comes to mental health, we're publishing a list of organizations that you can give to if you want to support social justice in our show notes. As always, links to all the studies and articles that were referenced in the show are available to our patrons. We've set up a Patreon account, so anyone who wants to support us and literally just cover our running costs, which is hosting on SoundCloud and things like that, can become a patron for as little as one euro per episode or five euros a month, you can decide. Because we are a podcast that likes to practice what we preach, Misinformed will be donating this month's Patreon money to one of the organizations on our list. I think we decided on the National Bailout Fund, which has Free Black Mamas campaign running this month. And like I said, this list will just be available to everyone to check out if you want to do the same. If you like this podcast, please rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us tweet us. I am at Rina underscore Grobe underscore and Madvi is at Madvi Romani. Follow us on Instagram at the underscore MS underscore informed or shoot us an email misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You will find links to our Twitter and Instagrams in our show notes as well as links to all the content we have discussed this week. Until next time, thank you for listening.